Welcome to Back Chat, where we discuss various topics making the news and ask the questions that need to be asked. Nothing is off limits and no questions are deemed inappropriate as we look to lift the lid and dig deep into the issues making the headlines. I'm Bobby M and this is Back Chat. India is the world's largest democracy. When India gained independence, its economy was in a state of shambles. Extreme poverty, unemployment and food insecurity were the major problems before the Indian government. But India's democratic constitution successfully balanced development and welfare of the country. And now, India is one of the fastest growing economies in the world. The election of Narendra Modi as prime minister in 2014 proved a hammer blow to the Congress party, which had ruled for the majority of the period since independence. But many had argued that Modi's BJP party promoted a Hindu nationalist agenda. However, in his time at the helm, Modi's India has developed at lightning pace, but recent developments such as the revocation of the special status of Jammu and Kashmir in August and the passing of the Citizenship Amendment Act in December 2019 have once again seen the Hindu nationalist accusations resurface. In this episode we discuss the broader state of Indian politics and ask whether Modi's decisions are a step towards or away from a stronger democratic India. Welcome everybody. We're joined again by my usual panelists Jazz, Mandeep and Jeet. Hi guys, how are you? Hello guys. Great. Nice nice to have you along and we're also joined by our special guest this evening as well, uh, Hitesh Gai who's a keen follower of Indian politics. Welcome Hitesh. Nice to have you join us. Thanks Bobby. It's a pleasure. So India's had a very checkered history in terms of its politics, but one of the things that's been a central core of Indian politics for such a long time has been the presence of the Congress party a very popular party since uh, partition since independence but over the years um i guess a lack of competition or a lack of a, a genuine contender uh paved the way for them to rule india for a long time hitesh in your experience what's really led to the decline of the congress party and in, indeed are they in decline I'll start with you know straight away addressing your question there Bobby I think that they have been in a state of decline for at least the last 3 decades um and if you just you know sort of go back to the history of the congress party um we see that you know their um, it's been basically been headed by one family um right from motilal nehru who sort of became the president of the Indian National Congress when India had not even gained the independence to his son Jawaharlal Nehru becoming the first prime minister a very successful prime minister albeit a few decisions that that sort of impacted India then Indira Gandhi who became uh, the prime minister uh, you know after the death of uh, um prime minister Shastri and then followed by her son Rajiv Gandhi who became the prime minister after she was assassinated and i think rajiv gandhi was the last gandhi who was sort of the prime minister and he was the president of the indian national congress or i should say the congress i so after rajiv gandhi became the prime minister the congress actually has never been in a in a simple majority leading the parliament and i think congress has really suffered the blow and they've always been trying to sort of chase getting the majority in the indian parliament now they lost power in 1989 and after that the congress has actually been there in the center there's no doubt about that but it's always been in a coalition government and so what they're actually struggling is to actually find that leader that charismatic leader that can actually muster the troops within the congress party and lead the party as a whole at a nationalistic level let's not forget it's it's the by far the biggest party that has still grassroots 
uh, workers in every state, in every district in India, but it's not actually had a leader. And they still have leaders at the state level, but it's that central leadership. You know, you need that fulcrum. You need a leader who can pivot and everybody, you know, revolve around that person. That personality is missing in the Congress party. And I think in, in the context that you sort of, you know, so, you know, very nicely put at the, at the introduction, I think the opposition where Congress is today, they're actually missing that leadership. And of course, leadership is important. And uh, you raise some very valid points there, Hitesh. Uh, leadership is important, but so are policies. Now, Jazz, I'll come to you. What seems to be the predominant factor in Indian politics at the moment? Is it the policies or is it the personalities? Of course, we've got a prime minister at the moment in Narendra Modi, whose uh, uh, popularity is far greater than many prime ministers in the past. In fact, in terms of world leadership, he's one of the most popular leaders in any country. Um, so are we looking at people power here, policy power? Where is it? Is it all about personality or should there be a balance? And have the Congress party got that balance? Obviously, Hitesh is suggesting the leadership isn't there. The leadership definitely isn't there. Um, but if you have a look at policies, uh, if I focus on the economic policies first before getting into domestic policies, um, economic policies are the continuation of, of what the Congress did uh, when they opened up uh, to a free market um, during Narasimha Rao's time when Mamon Singh was the finance minister. Um, those policies are, con- are continuing today. Before that, you had the Congress which was a license raj, it used to be called in those days, where you had uh, monopolies, families controlling businesses, um, and the country progressed in a very socialist way. Uh, so the continuation of, of the finance policies changing, the economic policies changing, the, the BJP government hasn't done anything different. Um, they might have tweaked it a little bit in adopting up to 49% FDI, foreign direct investment um, rules, but it's a continuation of those policies that, that came forward. Where I think they differ is that they've taken a very hardline stance in a lot of domestic policies. Um, the revocation of laws in uh, Jammu and Kashmir uh, is a good example. Um, but that is something even the Congress used to think about in the early days, uh, the revocation of those laws. Those laws were brought in as a temporary measure, but during the decades they continued. Uh, the BJP has more of a hardline stance um, as far as the domestic policies are concerned. And I think a lot of what also happens is that a lot of bad press gets given to a lot of policies which people don't understand. But the Citizen, Citizenship Amendment Act, most people complain about that without really understanding what that act is. Mm. Um, that act uh, is actually... And, and, we'll, and we'll come to that shortly. Um, and, and I'm glad you touched upon that because that has divided a lot of opinion. And, you know, some people understand it. Some people obviously don't understand it. So we'll be looking for a bit of clarity around exactly what that entails. But Mandy, I'll ask you a question as well. Even though India is a democratic constitution, in reality, the power has always been in the hands of politicians, bureaucracy, and also dynasties, you know, rich and powerful. And Hitesh mentioned, you know, how, you know, the Gandhis had ruled India for so long. And that's an example of a dynasty that had been there for so long. And I guess for the BJP to finally come and overturn that uh, has required significant effort. Uh, But being in power for so long, that can have its downside. And I guess people are desperate for change when one party's been in power for so long. We see all over the world in in countries around the globe where we find the same happens. You go through a cycle uh, of, you know, parties being in power and then the people 
you know, really demanding change. But how hard would that change have been uh, when you've got such a strong dynasty and such a strong name in Indian politics? Uh, Hitesh was completely right when he stated that the Congress party, have, uh, they don't have any charismatic leader now. Um, and as you said, um, you know, with having a dynasty, that can't um, rule forever. Things change, generations change, and uh, people who were young then are now older. You have a new younger generation. Their aspirations are different. They might not quite relate to you know, the times when Congress was in power. Uh, and the other thing is I think people underestimate um, the election uh, machinery that uh, Modi has used. He's used all forms of technology uh, to harness you know, the power of his charisma. And that's what uh, the BJP have used in the last election and the previous one. And that's why they are there. They can relate to the normal individuals currently. Uh, and they've harnessed that technology, you know, electioneering, social media. And they're doing a, you know, you can call it whatever you want, but they're harnessing it. Much the same way that Trump was uh, really muted as, you know, using a lot of technology and social media in, in, in order to gain power. Um, but do you think, um, and Hitesh, I'll ask you this question. Do you think Narendra Modi has uh, targeted any particular uh, parts of the population? Has he gone after the youth? Uh, has he recognized that area as being essential to change in India? Or did he go across the board and try and appeal to the masses regardless? I think it's a bit of both, to be very honest with you. I think he is, um, like Madeep said, he has he has actually used the election machinery that the that his party, the BJP, um, has in a very very smart way. So when he was elected in 2014, his plan to ascend to the prime ministership was uh, what I would say is sort of a wholesome plan. Um, there was something for every age group. Um, he had a very very keen eye on. The, um, the young population who had turned 18 since the previous election. And he knew that there was a very, that was a very, very sizable number. But remember, India has the biggest middle class in the world. And so his main focus was towards the middle class. And when he came in 2014, he was actually coming at the back of some of the biggest scams that the Indian governments had seen in the recent past or in the last two decades, I would say, um, you know, just before he was sworn as the prime minister. And these were not scams that, that were ordinary scams. These are scams that were really hitting the common man. And it was hitting the confidence of the common man to actually invest in the Indian economy. And so when I say that you know, it's the middle class was being affected the most, he sort of played that into his messages and his me message was very clear that he's going to give a clean governance system. And I think that was actually then from the common man's perspective. So whether it was the young person who was voting for the first time, whether it was the largest middle class, or whether it was some of the senior citizens who had seen so much of their sort of life savings being sort of, you know, burnt into the scams or sort of, you know, as if it's been lost, he sort of, you know, played to those messages very well. So I think if I have to sort of summarize your question, I think he played to every single age group very well in terms of the message and his party played, uh, used their party's machinery very, very well uh, in terms of the election. 
and he and he did come in with a very strong uh, anti-corruption approach as well, didn't he? We all know um, that he uh, that the most far-reaching uh, proposal he came out with was the demonetization and replacement of the 500 and 1,000 rupee banknotes and just gave a few hours notice, which if you were to think about that happening in countries such as Australia or the UK, uh, unheard of. But such a massive decision. And the purpose, of course, was to stop black money, uh, cash used for illicit activities by making it difficult to exchange large sums of cash. Um, how did that go down? Um, I know in 2018, you know, in terms of the elections, uh, there were some surprises and some surprise defeats for the BJP um, in Madhya Pradesh, Rajasthan, to name a couple of places. I mean, how, how much was that to do with some of the reforms that he made in his first term in office? Hitesh, I'll ask you again. Um, I, look, I think the demonetization was, as you said, it was totally unexpected, you know, with a four hour heads up, you know, pretty much nobody could do anything. And and I think I, I'd be lying to say, you know, if, if initially that shock, you know, nobody sort of swallowed that shock. But I think the common man actually understood that he actually came on the back of a mandate promising that he's going to give up clean guns. And if you can't for, for a topic like this, you can't actually give notice, right? That defeats the purpose if you're giving, going Absolutely. to give notice to people to sort of, you know, he, he had to do it without a warning. Now, initially, everybody thought that this is it. He's actually, you know, sort of, um, to use the cricketing analogy, he's hit his own stumps. He's going to be sort of, you know, he's going to be losing out into people's confidence. That wasn't the case at all. The common man actually supported him. So it was probably the rich class, the ones who sort of lost money, um, you know, who, the ones who actually probably had a lot of black money, you know, did, did not like it. But the man who didn't have to lose anything, who said, well, you know, my money changes from this form to that form, they actually did not mind at all. And, mm. you know, sort of you, you, you alluded to what happened in 2018. I think India is still, you know, in the federal structure that it has. There is still a very big distinction in the common man's eyes in terms of what happens at the state election doesn't necessarily have to be repeated at a federal election. You'll see that across the, across the decades, at least over the last three decades, you might have somebody else at a state leadership, but they have a very, very clear idea who they actually want to have at a federal leadership. So even in that December 2018, October to December 2018, you named a couple of states when they actually lost some of the key states. Um, in those states as well, when somebody was asked a question, you know, and the polling was done, who are you going to choose at the state leadership? Who are you going to choose at the, at the federal leadership? At the federal leadership, Narendra Modi still had an overwhelming mm. majority. Mm. And, you know, by far he was ahead of any other, you know, candidate from any other party. Mm. So I, I guess, you know, the demonetization made probably um, some impact at the beginning. In the long run, I, I sort of don't think that there has been a big impact at all. No, and I agree. I think his uh, charisma has enabled him to ride the, ride the waves, uh, if you like. And look, um, we'll go to Jeets next. Jeets, obviously, you live in uh, the UK. And like me, you're probably not overly uh, familiar with Indian politics. But in terms of the popularity of this man, I mean, even you as someone who's not really engaged uh, in Indian politics, even you would be aware of the popularity. I, I, and I know we were talking earlier about how uh, Modi had uh, visited London and wherever he seems to visit, he seems to have this this magic or this aura about him that just draws people into him. Is it the touch of the common man uh, who can relate with other people? What do you think it is about him, Jeets, that really you know defines him as a person? Yeah, his PR must be really good. Um, no, but he, yeah, he is very popular. I don't know why. Um, I think Hitish or Jazz maybe 
could answer that why it's so popular all around the world. Um, but I think it goes for like most politicians, like uh, in the major countries, are very popular now. Um, like, um, for example, like Trump, he's he's like probably the most famous U, uh, U.S. president probably since the Kennedys, I'd say globally. Um, maybe Obama as well, but that's because he was the first black president. But, um, but I think they, I think they were popular for different reasons, though, weren't they? I think Trump yeah, is popular or, or famous because he's a bit of a comedian, yeah, yeah. whereas Obama was popular because he was such a sensible, well balanced, and he was the first, you know, uh, America's first black president. And but but what he did for the country was amazing as well. He was a real statesman. When he opened his mouth, people listened. Whereas mm-hmm. when Trump opens yeah. his mouth, you yeah. probably want to put your fist through it. Yeah, so critics. there's a bit of a difference there. He had his critics as well. He's like, like any president, prime minister of course. around of course. the world. Um, but yeah, I mean, probably Hitesh or Jazz would be, could answer why he is so popular, Modi. Jazz, what, what is it? Is it the fact that he's, you know, a, a common man, you know, and people can relate to him? I think the popularity, I think if you analyse his, where he's come from, I think what people forget, people have short memories as well. Um, there was a time when he wasn't even allowed to visit the U.S. because he wasn't able to get a U.S. visa because of the Godra riots. Um, and that was when he was a um, chief minister. Uh, so you, you go from a stage where uh, someone who has no world respect because of issues that are linked with him to when he is the prime minister. And let's not kid ourselves. Yeah? Why these pr- prime ministers and politicians and presidents are popular across the world is because they do business and they allow business. Um, India's relationships with countries has changed. It never used to have a relationship with Israel, but in the last few years, that's come on strongly. So it's a very capitalist-based relationship that India has uh, because India is a powerhouse. In the next 10 years, it's reputed to be the to go up to the top three in, in world economies behind America and China. Um, he's, come, he's come at a time when the sensationalist politics is now at the center of it. Uh, nowadays, you need charisma. Uh, you, need, you need people with character. The days when people like um, um, Roosevelt, who couldn't even walk, was the president of America, those days are gone. And so you can't have a leader who is seen to be weak in a publicity, celebrity type of appeal. Uh, he's come across at a time, and I'll be honest, the BJP, if you look at their top brass, they haven't actually got another person who can step into his shoes. They've got pretenders. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that Congress, BJP, swap in places sometime in the near future, because all it takes is for a character to come forward, because that's what appeals. It's that voice that appeals and you listen mm. to him. Modi says all the right things. You know, He appeals to everyone because he says the right things. Now, whether or not he does the right things is a different, you know, is, is, is a different thing. And who he has as his ministers doing the right thing is another, you know, a story as well. So I think, you know, we are in the days when social media is here, you know, a few tweets here and there, the popularity increases. Uh, and these days, if you have a look at pretty much... Um, all the Indian news channels, you've got a lot of them that are kind of center to right, you know, Republic TV probably being the best example of it. Uh, And so you have that message being bombarded on a daily basis. 
Uh, and you know, we get it. Trump, from Trump to Boris Johnson to Modi, you've got three world leaders today who are from that center to right uh, in their stance. And they appeal, they appeal to the masses because they say some sens sensationalist uh, things that appeal. Uh, and that's what I think we've, we've probably come down to um, these days. The, the, the education out of politics has, has disappeared. Um, and I think that's the way we're heading. And I think, uh, you know, it's because his, his, his appeal and his, and his wording, um, he's very clever in terms of how he speaks. Because even if you watch him in the United Nations, he speaks in his mother tongue, Hindi. He doesn't speak in English uh, because he's able to portray his message. And what he does very, very well is that if you listen to any of his UN speeches, he focuses on the positives of what India is doing. Um, he always has a, a message in terms of the Swatch Bharat campaign, uh, the Bill Gates and Melinda Gates um, campaign. Uh, a lot of emphasis is given to what, they, what he is doing to bring up India uh, uh, to, the, to the sort of next wave in, in what they're looking for. Because, you know, at the, at the heart of it, it's a capitalist country. Is going to look for an economy, uh, and that's what the that's what the aim is. And so, you know, from a guy who was wasn't allowed to travel anywhere in the world because of visa bans, to being one of the most popular mm. prime ministers, you know, let's be honest, at the end it? of the day, it's capitalism that mm. comes to. Mm. And that brings me nicely to the, the next uh, couple of points. Um, we've spoken about his popularity around the world, but a couple of recent um, decisions made by him and his party have again split the nation. And indeed, not just a nation of uh, divided people's opinions uh, around the world. And the first of those I want to talk about is the revocation of Article 370, uh, where special status was given to Jammu and Kashmir, a state in India located, located in the northern part of the Indian subcontinent uh, and a part of the larger region of Kashmir, which has been the a subject of dispute between India, Pakistan and China for many, many years. Now, that article conferred power on Jammu and Kashmir to have a separate constitution, a state flag, and also autonomy over the internal administration of the state. Now, with that going, Hitesh, um, that's divided opinion and caused protests um, and a lot of issues for, for the Modi government. Uh, just explain to us, would you, how that has affected the lives of people in Jammu and Kashmir? Why has it divided people so much? Well, this is a question, Bobby. I could probably speak on the whole night because I think it's very difficult to sort of succinctly answer this question. So let me first give the history very slightly, you know, in a very, very sort of uh, summarize the history of this article. Now, this came about, you know, when, when the Constitution of India was there, there was, there was a negotiation between Jammu and Kashmir, um, which was sort of at the, you know, uh, discussion points of the United Nations back then. And there was something else that was associated with 370 was Article 35A. Now, 370 itself, like you said, you've already enunciated what it actually stood for, how it gave a separate flag and, and basically gave control to the over the um, administration. Now, it was only, it was only a, now, correct me if I'm wrong, Hitesh, it was only ever meant to be a temporary provision, wasn't it? Article 370. That's correct. It was, it was only meant to be a temporary provision. But what they did was they actually did not identify or define what was the meaning of the word temporary. Now it was temporary and the whatever status had to be changed or not changed was actually dependent on the constituent assembly quote unquote of the Jammu and Kashmir state. The constituent assembly itself was dissolved in 1957. 
So pretty much, you know, there seem to be this impression that that temporary has now changed to permanent. That's not true because, you know, it was written in the, into the Constitution as a temporary provision. Now, I, I, along with that was Article 35A, which basically said that nobody from outside of Jammu and Kashmir could actually come and invest or buy property in Jammu and Kashmir. So it's only the domiciled citizens of the state that could actually buy property. Mm. And, you know, it also sort of, uh, dominated or sort of controlled the rights of women even after their even after their marriage so for as an example if they married somebody outside the state of jammu and kashmir you know they their kids would not have any rights into the state so these were some of the issues and i think some of the other things were um, you know, India is a very casteist society. Some of the lower caste people that were, that were living in Jammu and Kashmir did not have any rights whatsoever. To give you one example, if there was somebody from a lower caste and who was sort of a sweeper or, you know, of that profession, that person was actually, and even their kids were not allowed to study any further. So a sweeper's son had to be a sweeper. Can you imagine that happening mm. in any part of the world? So I think these were some, some of the legitimate reasons that this article was revocated. Now, it, it only was, um, Jack said in his introductory remarks that, you know, the Congress actually wanted to, or they had the intention. I would slightly respectfully disagree over there. I, I, I think they have been in power for a far long greater time than BJP. But they never actually showed that intention of revo revoking those articles. I think BJP really showed the willpower. At the same time, I, I don't want to say sort of, you know, sound like I'm patronizing the BJP. Obviously, you know, there's no political party that does everything correct. But I think in this instance, they really showed some political leadership that was required, some iron will, if I can put it that way, required to revocate this. Now, how, how has it changed the lives of people in JNK? I think it has given, brought everybody on an equal footing. Um, there will obviously be people inside JNK who will disagree because Absolutely. for 70 years, they associated with those un, you know, sort of unjust laws, and life has changed in one sort of you know stroke for them. Um, but to be honest with you, this is probably the right way to go. Um, at the same time, this matter is now sub judice as it's been challenged by multiple petitions in the Supreme Court of India, and let's see what the Supreme Court comes up with. For now, they have upheld. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, JNK has now been divided into Jammu Kashmir and the Union Territory of Ladakh. Um, so it has, the state has been divided um, and um, it's under central leadership. Yeah. And it's interesting, it has certainly divided opinion. And the most recent chief minister of Jammu and Kashmir called it the blackest day of Indian democracy, uh, whilst representatives of the Kashmiri Hindu community who were displaced, and we know uh, they were wiped out from the Kashmir Valley as a result of the ongoing violence, they welcomed the move and hoped that members of their community, numbering anywhere between 300,000 to 400,000 people, would now be able to return to what was their home in the Kashmir Valley. So uh, certainly divided opinion. Uh, thank you for that, Hitesh. Uh, the next thing I'm going to talk, talk about, and uh, we'll close on this, is, you know, probably the latest, um, I don't really want to call it a scandal. Again, it's a decision that's been taken. It's not really a scandal, unless people want to see it that way. But it's a decision. Uh, it's, it's an act that was passed by the Parliament of India on the 11th of December 2019, uh, where uh, it amended the citizen Ship Act of 1955 by providing a path to Indian citizenship for illegal migrants of Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, Jain, Parsi and Christian religious minorities who had fled persecution from Pakistan, Bangladesh and Afghanistan before December 2014. Now again, that's divided opinion and caused uh, many uh, to argue that uh, there's religious persecution uh, and that 
members of the Muslim faith living uh, around India in those countries I mentioned are not able to gain citizenship in the same way that these other religious minorities are now able to. Uh, Jazz, what are your views on this? And then uh, we'll come to you, Mandeep, and then come to Hitesh. So it's a very controversial act that, 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 that got passed. Uh, and there's two ways of looking at it. Um, the first is that, you know, the, the, the sections um, or religions that are allowed to come back to India were those that were, you could either say, chose to stay behind or stranded um, or had no choice when the partition took place in, in Bangladesh, which at the time was um, East Pakistan and West Pakistan, which is now Pakistan. Um, when those communities were left behind, you can say it's that they themselves stayed behind, such as the Sindhis and Sindh, um, or those that got stranded and left behind. Um, it's a route for them to get back into to India. Um, that's one perspective of looking at it. Where the controversy actually comes in, um, there's two sides to the controversy. One is that because Muslims are excluded from it. There's a section of community that believe that this is actually detrimental for the Muslims of India, but it doesn't affect their citizenship rights. Um, nobody's asking the Muslims of India to go, and they're not affected. Um, and this is what, you know, if you watch the news, news channels and the news reports, that's where the sensationalism, sensationalism comes in, because that act is not understood. Um, nobody's asking the Muslims of India to leave, uh, or, or their citizenship will be taken away. And that message sometimes isn't passed through. Where the controversy for those people who do understand the law is that what about those Muslims who are persecuted uh, across the borders? Um, one of the fascinating insights that I hear um, from quite a few journalists is that it's very rare that you get um, the different sections of Muslim societies coexisting peacefully. Uh, there's always been a not always, but pretty much till the beginning of time, I think, uh, been a divide between the Sunni and Shia uh, religions, sects of Islam. In India, they actually coexist quite peacefully. So it's one of those issues where if India is to, you know, play its role as a secular community, then the sort of moral dilemma is, will it allow those minority Muslim communities who are persecuted, like such as the Ahmadiyya Muslims in Pakistan, for example, and the are those allowed in? Uh, mm. That's where the controversy actually comes in. It is, mm. This actually has many layers to it. It's mm. not a, you know, there's a one argument either for or against. There's actually layers to this because you get different sects who, mm. who make up the population. And so it's a very controversial subject in terms of who's allowed in, who's not allowed. I mean, I agree that, that the, the communities that it has allowed in um, that is fine. You know, I've got no argument with that. But it then depends of where India wants to, how it wants to portray itself. What actually is its image and what is it actually doing? Is it going to allow those minority persecuted Muslims in or not? That's where the controversy, I think, happens for a lot of people who understand what the CAA is actually about. Um, and, it's not and, about and stripping the rights. And look, the Indian government has said that Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bangladesh have Islam as their state religion, and therefore Muslims are unlikely to face religious persecution there. And the other argument, the other counter argument that I've read has been that if you're going to allow the persecuted faiths to come into India and gain citizenship, if you let in those people who are persecuting them, are you letting the fox into the hen house? 
And does that defeat the whole object? If you're allowing the persecuted and the persecutors in, then have you really solved the issue? Uh, Mandeep, what are your thoughts? I think I agree with Jazz there. Um, I think most people, I think, think that this has got to do with people already living in India. Mm. It's, it's, not, it's got to do with uh, refugees who are at the borders, who are the ethnic minority, who are persecuted in their lands. And it's for them that India is willing to give them the rights. Uh, like Jazz said, yes, there might be other uh, ethnic minority Muslim communities. For example, the Sufis, they are prosecuted as well. So whether India allows them the same sort of uh, you know, rights, that's a different matter. Uh, but I think it's all spun politically, and, and that's the main problem. Uh, people don't understand that it's about the refugees. It's not about the people who are already settled, living for one, two generations in India who might not have a passport or you know, the, the, the correct paperwork. It's not got to do with them. It's to do with refugees who are being mm. persecuted. And, and that's mm. like any other country. They would have their uh, criteria of whom to allow the number of people uh, you know, per year. So it's just it's spun in different sort of... Uh, uh, angles. Yeah, Hitesh, I'll come to you finally. So I mentioned to Jazz that obviously uh, a lot of the people who are being uh, allowed to come into India now who have been persecuted are coming from countries which have um, Islam as their official state religion. And I mentioned the government say that Muslims cannot be treated as persecuted minorities if they're coming from a Muslim majority country. Um, and that seems to be the counter argument from India in terms of this amendment. What do you feel about this? Is, is that a, a valid argument? Um, and is that the only argument or is there more to it than just that? I, I think there is there is probably a little bit more to it than just that. There, there's, uh, like Jazz rightly put it, I think there's several layers to this one. Uh, but, you know, to address your question first heads on, I think there is a little bit more to this. Um, and I'll divide it probably into two parts. So, you know, let's look at it first that... Um, these countries were actually divided on the basis of religion. Um, and, um, you know, when it was by the basis of religion, it was clear that they wanted an Islamic statehood country. And that's what they got. And that, that's what that was West Pakistan, East Pakistan. Now you have Pakistan and, and Bangladesh. And so if they wanted it on the basis of that, even at that particular point in time, they actually knew that there are different sects within Islam. So they had this idea that they're going to live together and they're going to manage those. So now how does India suddenly, for just for the basis of the citizenship amendment, go to a pre-1947 arrangement and mm. start accepting people because they questionably could, could have been you know, persecuted over there. So mm. I, think, I think that's the stand that the government is taking. But there is another layer to it. This is about those persecuted minorities in those countries. But if there are any other persecuted Muslims and have nothing to do with the CA, there is the other route of gaining citizenship of India. As a very famous you know, singer from, from Pakistan was recently accorded the Indian citizenship. And the other thing that I think is, is very true is what Mandeep said. This has a lot of political color to it. Um, mm, as social sure. media is a double-edged sword. It's been used for good things but it can be used for negative opinions as well. And I think in the Citizenship Amendment Act, there is a lot of negative opinion floating around for those reasons. 
Um, so I think in the interest of time, Bobby, I'm just sort of going to stop there. But look, again, it's a topic you can talk on forever. Thank you so much. And I guess India being the largest democracy, you're always going to have these issues which are going to divide people, which are going to encourage debate uh, and conversation. And I think that will continue for a long time. Certainly from an economic perspective, India is in uh, a very strong position and continues to grow. And I think with uh, Narendra Modi, the majority of people are happy um, and that will continue. Uh, so thank you very much to my panelists, Jazz, Mandeep and Jeets. And a very special thank you to you, Hitesh, for joining us uh, for this podcast. It's been wonderful having your uh, views and opinions certainly added a lot to the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, join us again soon for another episode of Backchat, where we go behind the headlines and beyond the boundaries to uncover the facts and discuss the real stories behind the news. Until next time, goodbye for now.